Right. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. It is great to have you. We are beginning this brand new series that we're calling Swipe Right, and I'm really excited about that. And part of the reason is because I think that it is coming at a really relevant point in the life of our calendar. Did you know that more people break up in the months of February and March than any other time throughout the calendar year? So you would think that wouldn't be the case since it's Valentine's Day and you hope that love connections would be made, but in fact, people find Valentine's Day as an, off, an opportunity to offboard out of a relationship. And so we felt like this is a perfect time to begin a conversation about love, sex, and romance. And I also don't know if you've noticed, but somewhere over the last 10 years, someone has changed the rules around dating and relationships. It really used to be so simple. If we look at how relationships and marriages were formed throughout the course of history, for the majority of the world, for thousands of years, they operated with the expectation that they would get married through an arranged marriage. And that would have been really nice, right, in some ways, right? You wouldn't have to worry about the awkwardness of dating. I felt like I was probably the most awkward person in high school. I was shy around girls and... um, and that would have, like, saved me a lot of grief and self, uh, just looking in the mirror in the morning, it would have really helped. Um, but when you're, so dating wasn't even an issue for thousands of years. You didn't have to think about who you were going to ask to the prom. You didn't have to deal with all the awkwardness associated with developing a relationship. Your parents did all the homework and research for you. But somewhere along the way, In the Western world, an idea emerged that said it would be nice if I could pick my own mate. And so people started breaking with tradition, breaking the the tradition to be arranged, to have your marriage arranged, and you started picking out the person that you wanted to marry. And this completely complicated the process. It completely changed the pattern of dating. And just imagine, and you probably have shared with this experience of mine, but If you've been to In-N-Out, and then maybe you've also been to McDonald's, it is a lot easier to order at In-N-Out than it is at McDonald's. And the reason why is because at In-N-Out, you have like three options, right? You get the hamburger, the cheeseburger, and then you can put an extra patty on the hamburger if you want to, and then you can get like a medium or a large. But at McDonald's, you have like interchanging 13 types of combo menus. You can get the small, the large the extra large, the super size me, the super duper size me. I don't know if that's even the way it's phrased, but it's so much more complicated when you have more choices. And that's sort of what happened when in the Western world, you begin choosing who you wanted to marry. But not only did choosing our mate complicate the process, technology also influenced the way that we date in our culture. And the first technological shift that impacted our dating in America was with the World Wide Web. That's right. It showed us that love was possible over the internet through instant messaging in chat rooms. And some of us in the room today could probably still remember the movie that came out during that time, You've Got Mail. Does anyone remember that movie? The, one of the taglines of the movie said, uh, it was the best way to meet someone is to never meet them at all through the internet. And then came along the next generation of technological influences 
with dating websites like eHarmony. And the idea behind eHarmony was to identify two people who were compatible with each other based on some similarities. And so you take a survey, and if you answered enough of the same questions correctly, then you were compatible with each other. And they have claimed that there have been over one million marriages that have taken place as a result of their algorithm. And then today, the next wave of technological influence in our dating patterns are the plethora of dating apps that exist in our world today. And the granddaddy of them all is called Tinder. Now, there are some of you who are acting like you don't know what I'm talking about, and that's fine. And then there are others of you who actually have no idea what I'm talking about. And so let me explain to you how Tinder works and how it's a little bit different from anything that has existed before. You can sign up on Tinder, you create an account, and then it gets you connected to a number of other people in your area who are also signed up on this dating site. And the unique thing about Tinder is it gives you very little uh, room or space for your biography to lie about your, I, should, I shouldn't say lie, I should say highlight your strengths. It gives you very little room, and really the decision is based on whether or not you are attracted to that person. Like that is their profile, it's a few pictures. And this is unique in terms of sort of the, the, the rhythms that we've experienced in the past. And so this is the decision you make. If you are attracted or you want to meet the person, you can swipe right. And if you're not attracted to them, you don't want to meet them, you swipe left. And so this is sort of where the concept of swipe right and swipe left emerged. And this really is a cultural influence in our day because uh, Tinder reported that there are 1.3 billion swipes per day. It recently reached its trillionth swipe, and this is specifically unique to the Bay Area because the San Francisco Bay Area has the fourth most Tinder subscribers in America. So many of us are looking for love, and there ain't nothing wrong with that. And today, I really am not discouraging people from swiping, but what we're trying to point out is that this is another step in the evolution and the development of cultural dating patterns. And what I'm convinced of is that it is more complicated today than it has ever been in the past. It just becomes more increasingly complicated. And as we try to navigate through these waters, we're kind of confused sometimes on how to engage in relationships in the best way. And so like I said, we're not suggesting today that you stop swiping. We're not suggesting that you stop using the internet as a form to develop relationships because really so many meaningful relationships have emerged as a result of this platform. So that's not what we're saying. That's not what I'm saying. But the goal of this conversation is to understand how to make the types of decisions in our relational patterns that don't leave us with a lifetime of regret. Because if we're being honest and we're at church You guys know the passage in the Bible that says you cannot lie at church, right? You guys know that one. It's in the New Testament somewhere. But if we're being honest, probably every one of us have walked into this room having some kind of relational regrets, decisions that we've made in the past, and maybe some of us have moved beyond that, and that's great, and the point of this is not to bring up any old things that we have in our closet and to bring them back to light. But the reality is that for so many of us, we're still on that journey. 
We're still on that journey, and it would be wonderful if today we can begin a new type of pattern in our life, new types of rhythms when it comes to dating so that we don't leave anyone else with regret and we don't walk with any more regrets as we prepare for perhaps a future spouse someday. So it's not about the past this morning, but it's all about moving forward with wisdom. And the premise of this conversation and the conversations that we'll have for the next few weeks is that it is built upon this idea that there is a God who created every single one of us with a longing for relationships. There is a God who created within humanity this innate desire to be a part of community. That is why there is this longing inside of us that wishes we have friends. That is why some of the most effective marketing is to make sure that you have people that are getting together and laughing and having a good time because there's something inside of all of us that wants that type of community. And there's a God that wants that for you. They have the type of relationship where you are thriving in it. This conversation is also to remind us that God created sex. And I feel weird saying sex at church, but I don't feel that weird because I don't see any small children in the room today. But God wanted us to enjoy this thing that he created for us. I mean, he made it pleasurable for a reason. But it's so sad that sometimes something that is so pleasurable can cause so much pain. And so we're going to talk about how to live in this rhythm in a way that honors God. And finally, we want to increase our capacity for romance. Like it is a beautiful and a wonderful thing to have romance in some of our meaning, in, in the meaningfulness of our marriage in our relationships. And so, um, and so if you are dating, if you're in a new relationship, maybe even in an old relationship, or maybe you are divorced and you're back in the game for the first time and you're like, what is going on with this culture? I've never experienced dating rhythms like this. This message is going to be particularly geared for you this morning. And so this morning I do want to address what I think is maybe one of the greatest lies that we embrace in our dating culture, and it is called the right person myth. The right person myth. And the myth suggests that if you marry the right person, everything is going to be awesome. Everything is awesome. Everything's going to work out. You won't have fights or drama because you'll be on the same page. You won't argue about how the towels are supposed to be folded or where you squeeze the toothpaste at to get the toothpaste out, whether you roll it up at the bottom or you squeeze it from the middle. And I feel like I'm exposing some of my own relational issues here. But when you marry the right person, things will all of a sudden magically align. You'll be equally organized. One person will love to cook and the other will love to clean dishes. And you know how you know if you've met the right person it is all about chemistry. It's all about chemistry. And this is how you know. is because you can't stop thinking about them all the time, right? You just think about them when you're driving. You think about them when you hear certain songs. You think about them when you see wedding rings and advertisements. That's all you do is you think about this other person. And then when you talk to them, you have some of the most meaningful conversations that you've ever had in your life. And then when they walk in the room, whoo. There's like this chemical that releases in your body and it feels like butterflies and you see them and you are enamored by them and that is how you know you have chemistry with someone else. Because you're convinced 
that the type of love you have for them has never existed before. It is like Romeo and Juliet level love. And that's how you know you've met the right one. And then you get married to this right person. And there are all these problems. And then the problems start to affect the chemistry that you had when you were dating. And the very thing that drew you together begins to die because the relationship was built on something that was never capable of sustaining it. And sometimes the problem that we have is we place too much of an emphasis on someone else's character, assuming that their character will overcome our shortcomings. Have you ever had that experience? I am convinced that life is like this journey of self-awareness. Have you ever had the experience where you realize that something you want is inconsistent with who you are? Something you want is inconsistent with who you are. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. There was a time in college where I was convinced I was going to be an Olympic wrestler. How many of you guys have enjoyed the Olympics over the last few days? I love watching the Olympics. They are so inspiring. My wife and I were watching them uh, Saturday morning, and, um, and she was like watching these amazing women in like this speed skating deal, and we were just thinking, and they would like tell the little bios of all that these kids did, young people did to like make it to the Olympics, and my wife turns to me, and she looks at me, and she says, what did we do this morning? And I thought, that's a good point, but at some point in my life, I wanted to be an Olympic wrestler. I was in college, and I remember when I sort of set that as something in my heart, I started training harder than I ever trained before. I started disciplining myself more than I had ever disciplined myself before, and I was certain that this path was going to lead me to becoming an Olympic champion or Olympic medalist, and someday I would be wearing the red and gold singlet with stars draped across my chest, and I would come home to my native land of Sunnyvale, and there would be a huge parade for me, and I imagine still being in my singlet and showing off this medal that I had won from the Olympics. Thank you. I appreciate that. But then something crazy happened. I met an Olympian, and I saw how an Olympian trained and I saw the level of discipline that it required. I saw the way that they slept and the way that they ate and the way that every part of their life was consumed by this goal. And I realized that when I compared my training to their training, it was so small. When I compared my discipline and my sacrifice, it was so insignificant compared to what they gave up to achieve that goal. And I realized in that moment that sometimes what we want is so inconsistent with who we are. And it takes sort of a measuring rod to help us see that. There's a story of a girl who, uh, and I heard it from a pastor, and he's telling the story as a girl told him where she grew up in a religious home. Eventually, she went to college and graduated. She moved to the city for a job and immersed herself in the dating culture of that area. And she was just kind of doing her thing, having a bunch of fun, and she kind of put her faith on the back burner. And it wasn't this decision where she had rejected her faith. It wasn't a, really even a conscious decision for her. She had just kind of gotten swept up in everything that was around her and kind of just went with the flow of the culture. And so there was one day that she was at a gathering and she was hanging out with some friends and she met a guy that she was really, really impressed with. She actually thought that he was the total package. She said he was handsome. He had a great job great personality, didn't live at home, 
anymore. He literally had everything. And I know some of you guys are thinking, no, this is not Kayla, my wife. This is not our story. The opposite may have been true in that scenario. But as she got to know this guy in this, this evening in conversation, it became so apparent that he was a follower of Jesus. And he wasn't any, just any random follower of Jesus, but he was someone who incorporated his faith at work, but he also incorporated his faith in his relationships. And she was so excited about this relationship. And as she began to get to know him, it sort of started bringing up some of the memories that she had about some of the other guys that she dated in her life. And so she ends up leaving the party. A few days later, she goes home to visit her parents, and she's sharing with her mom all these wonderful details about this guy that she met at this party a number of weeks ago, and she's kind of just running through this list of things that she loves about him. And finally, somewhere in the conversation, the mom sort of pauses, and she says, Honey, if everything that you're telling me about this man is true, then he's not looking for a girl like you. And the girl telling the story said that she sort of fell down to the ground, fell on the floor, and she started weeping. She started crying, not because she was upset at her mom, because what her mom said was true. She realized that what she wanted in a relationship wasn't consistent with the type of life that she was living. And even though she admired his life, there was no way that someone who was living his life in that way would want to be in a relationship with the way that this girl was living her life. And one of the interesting things is, is when you look at the Bible, you really don't find a lot of help on how to attract the right person. Right? There's not a lot of strategic dating principles in the Bible. There's not a lot of pickup lines. But when you, maybe there are, I haven't, I haven't come across any. But when you open up the Bible, what you find is a lot of direction on how to become the right person. It's not about how to attract the right person, but how to become the right person. And so the challenge in our context today, instead of having the mindset of finding the right person, the question that we're going to try to answer this morning is how do we become the right person? How do we become the person that we're looking for is looking for? How do we become the type of person that we're looking for is looking for? And so to do that, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and pull them out. If you have the phone, the Bible app, you can use that. And if you have neither of those, we'll make sure to have all of the sentences up on the screen. This is a passage where you have the Apostle Paul, who is writing to a church in one of the most diverse cultures of the first century, the, the, the city of Corinth. It is a metropolitan area, and it is filled with people who are from every type of background that you can imagine, every type of political uh, ideology that you can imagine, and they are collected together in this church because they are identifying with a common experience, and that is their experience with Jesus. And so what we see happen in this community is that there becomes a lot of drama. And I like to say that the church at Corinth made the bachelorette look like full house. Okay, that's how much drama existed in this first century community. There was so much immorality taking place. And Paul said people who don't even have morals 
would, you would make them blush by what you guys are doing in this community. And so a lot of this letter was to correct some of these behaviors and these patterns that were causing people harm. But part of it, Paul, at some point, begins to talk about what each person in this community could embrace as their own personal responsibility to develop unity among this church. And this is what we call 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where Paul lays out what it looks like to have love, what it looks like to demonstrate love in relationship. And so we're going to look at two verses this morning that I think speak particularly to the dating relationship or the dating phase of life. So let me go ahead and read for you this morning, beginning in verse 4. It says, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrong. And so Paul gives this amazing practical template to the type of person that every one of us would want to be in a relationship, maybe not necessarily a romantic relationship, but we would want to be in a relationship with this type of person. And so I'm going to pick out a few of these that I think are especially pertinent to the dating relationship. The first thing that Paul says is that love is patient. I love how one person describes patience in relationship. He says patience is the decision to move at someone else's pace rather than pressure him or her to match your pace. That is patience. I feel like we're living in a unique time in human history where patience is like this precious commodity, right? It is this ancient relic of a characteristic. And I personally blame Amazon. If you work for Amazon in this room, you are at fault for ruining our patience. And this is the reason why. Because all of us have gotten used to two-day shipping. And the other day I tried to order something from another company besides Amazon, and it reminded me of how long it takes for most people to deliver packages. It was like 10 days, and I thought, how could I possibly wait 10 days for something? But not only does our mail system influence our impatience, but we have access to information at our fingertips. And so it has sort of created this high expectation that we don't wait for things. And the problem is, is that sometimes we carry that over into our relationship. Maybe someone or something has sort of moved you along in your progress in life. And you're with someone who maybe hasn't understood what obviously you understand is so obvious to everyone else. And they're not where you're at. And all you want to do is to tell them what to do and how to act because you already know the right answer. We don't need to talk about this. You don't need to process this. Just do what I'm telling you to do. Sometimes in our relationships, we are so impatient with one another. We haven't given each other the space or the room or the freedom to allow for God to work in their heart and at their pace. I have found that when you pray for patience, this is like the one thing that God will always answer immediately. Like if you ever say, God, give me an opportunity. I want to learn to be more patient. All of a sudden, someone cuts you off on the road or your kids start throwing themselves on the ground at the grocery store or something happens where God is like, there you go. <laughs> opportunity to develop patience. But it really is one of the greatest gifts that we can give the people in our life is to have an attitude of patience, trusting that they are also on a journey that God is developing them in. The second thing is, that love is kind or considerate. Kindness 
is love's response to weakness. That is why kindness is so powerful, right? When you are kind and gentle to someone at a moment of weakness, it is like this beautiful gift that you offer them in real time to act kind and to be gentle. And all of us hopefully know what it's like to have kindness demonstrated to us, where maybe we're sick and someone cares for us in an unusually loving manner. Acts of kindness are such a big deal because they sort of catch you at a moment when you're in need and they lift you up, they bring you to a place that you could not have brought yourself. And in relationship, the Bible says that a kind word turns away wrath. Have you ever been so angry at someone that you get caught up in like your own anger and you're talking to them in such an aggressive manner and then they kind of sort of stop you in your tracks with a loving comment? I feel like I've done this a lot with my wife where I've been so upset about something and I take it out on her and she says, honey, I am so sorry that happened to you. And I am so sorry that you're going through that right now. Is there anything that I can do to help? I'm like, oh, well, since you put it that way, um, you know, I guess it's not that big of a deal. But there is something so powerful about kindness and relationships, gentleness. A kind word turns away wrath. Number three, love does not envy. It is not proud. It does not boast. What envy does in relationship, it says this. Envy says, I don't feel so good about myself, so I can't feel good about you either. Envy is really rooted deeper and wider than the relationship in which it surfaces. Envy is rooted in insecurity. And it is a serious problem if the person that we're in a relationship with is experiencing something that needs to be celebrated and the other person is struggling to celebrate that in their life. That is what envy does. It stifles and keeps silent the person from celebrating what, the, what another person has accomplished in their life. When we should be a person's biggest cheerleader, we are in the room uh, on the, in the corner sulking about the fact that maybe we're not the one in the spotlight. Or maybe you're a husband and your wife has been more financially successful than you and you are acting like a child because there's some insecurity in your heart about what you think you should be producing in your life, about the contribution that you're making in your family. This is what envy does. It is like a heavy weight on someone's back. And I promise that we never want to be the thing that holds someone back from achieving what God has for them in this life. But that is what envy will do. When you date, I want to challenge us to never create, create regret in a person's life. And so that's why the next thing that Paul lists here, he says, love is not dishonorable. I think, I think one of the greatest ways that we dishonor the people that we've been in relationships with is when we share information that was confidential while we were dating, and then somehow we think it's public when the dating relationship breaks. And you become a source of regret in someone's life. Because at a vulnerable season, they gave you a part of who they were, and then what did you do with it? We cast pearls to swine. We diminish something that was so valuable to someone just because we're not in a relationship with them anymore. 
We never want our faith to be a sign of regret in someone else's story. Never want who we are to be a regretful thing in their life. And I think that all of us have probably made some relational mistakes. And for many of us, there's nothing that we can do about what has happened in the past. But we know that now we can make the types of decisions where we are not creating regrets in our own life and we're not becoming a regret to someone else. And finally, love is not self-seeking. This is maybe the most foundational principle out of the entire two verses. It is a shift in our mindset. Really, it is a shift in our heart. Because the most natural thing for every single one of us to do is to act in, in, in sort of preservation for ourselves. We are all self-preservationists. We are all trying to survive. And the most natural thing is to make decisions that benefit who we are. But what Paul is saying is that love is not self-seeking. Love is not primarily concerned with promoting self, primarily in relationships. I really feel like this is a little bit of my story. I feel like when my wife and I got married, I was, and I'm not saying that I have arrived, so please don't hear me say that at all. But we always tell people, I tell people, I say, we have been happily married for six years, but we have been actually married for eight years. Because the first two years of our marriage was very, very difficult. There was a lot of pettiness, and a lot of it was tied up in my heart. There were a lot of expectations in my mind that my wife was there to serve me. My wife was there to meet my needs. I needed lunch at a certain time. I needed to make sure that I had my clothes taken care of at a certain time, and I met a strong woman. And she said, I don't think so. We foreclosed my way in this house. There was the story of Ruth Graham. She was the wife of the well-known preacher, Billy Graham. He had maybe led more people to Jesus than any other person in human history, Billy Graham. And she was once asked by a reporter, she said, have you and Billy ever considered divorce? She said, divorce, no, murder, yes. And some of us have felt that at certain seasons in relationship, right? We said, hey, we're not getting divorced. The only way we're getting out of this is if one of us goes to see God. But the root of all of this is not marriage problems, right? Marriage problems don't exist. These are called single people problems that we bring into marriage. And so the challenge for us in this life, and there are some of us who are married here today. There are some of us still in the game. We're single The challenge for us is to begin to apply some of these truths that we see in this chapter on love that Paul uses. He says you want to refine your relationships in the midst of drama, begin to behave in these ways. Be patient, be kind, don't be boastful, don't be envious. Begin to live your life and allow for this to be a filter of your behavior. So what we're going to do today is that we're going to help you to do that. This morning, as you walk out of this room, we have our team at the back there, and they are going to give you a little card. And I want to challenge you, challenge you this week that in your most significant relationships, 
I want you to sort of keep this card in a place that you'll remember, maybe on your dashboard of your car, or maybe slipped in the little credit card area of your wallet, or right there in your purse. But keep this little card near and dear to you this week, just this week. And as you begin to conduct yourself throughout the day, begin to sort of evaluate your life and those relationships according to these qualities. Was I patient with my wife this week? Was I kind in a moment of weakness? Was I boastful? Was I obnoxious? Was I proud? Was I envious of his accomplishments? And we want to begin to place this as a filter over our life. And the second thing we're going to do is we're also going to give you a flower. Okay, this is not because it is Valentine's Day week. Actually, Valentine's passed, so, I mean, you can use it as a Valentine's Day gift, but the purpose of it is to be a symbolism. And we want this to be a day where you sort of move beyond these old patterns of dating in your life, these old destructive patterns that maybe have caused you to carry regret with you in this morning, and this flower is going to be a symbol of death to those patterns, death to those behaviors. And we want you to set it up at a place where you live and put it right where everyone can see. And slowly, day after day, as that flower begins to die, let it be a picture of these old patterns dying with it, these old regrets dying with it, and the fact that you are no longer living under the past, but you're beginning this new journey, this new path in your relationship. At the end of the day, we are a church right? We're a community of people who are tied to Jesus in some way or another. We are on that journey. And we will never really be successful in our aim as a church if all we think is that we're here because we can sort of have this behavior modification, right? If you act kind, things will go well. If you're generous, if you're a loving person, if you're gentle, life is going to be better. There is a deeper truth to everything we talk about here on Sunday morning. And it is always tied to the most important relationship of all, and that is a personal relationship with Jesus. Because yes, some of these qualities will impact the quality of your relationship. But they will always be us operating slightly out of rhythm until we allow for that thing that God offers us in our heart to sort of fully manifest itself in who we are until we finally make that step to trust that Jesus is enough and to invite him in. The Bible says that Jesus is knocking at the door of every heart. And what he wants so desperately, so deeply, is for all of us to experience life in the fullest way. And I'm convinced that even in some of our most important relationships, that we will not fully understand the depths in which we can enjoy another human being until we understand the love, the personal love that God has for every single one of us. And that always begins with that first step of faith, asking Jesus to be your Savior. So this morning, we're going to wrap up our time together, and we're going to pray. And as you walk out the room, make sure you grab a flower and make sure you grab a card. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather every Sunday to learn, to challenge ourselves, to go a little bit further in the commitment uh, of this journey. And God, we pray that you would allow for, Lord, what we heard today to impact our lives and impact our relationships. 
Because God, you desire that we would have enjoyable sex lives. You, enjo- you desire that we would have meaningful relationships. And God, you, enjoy- you desire that we would experience the power of romance in this world. But God, if our perspective is that it is out there, we are dependent on our external circumstances or another person for those things to manifest themselves in this world and in our life, we're going to be held back. The challenge that we have this morning is not necessarily, God, that we would be looking for the right person, but God, maybe the greater challenge is that we would become the right person. That our lives would be consistent with what what we hope for in the future. God, I pray that for every person here today, I pray that if, if any of us are living with the regret of past decisions, 